everybody, and welcome to another episode of Ignite Radio Live over the four stations of Annunciation Radio. We are so delighted that you are with us tonight, and we have two wonderful guests in the studio, of course, and our wonderful intern, Anna Kemper. So you're with Stephanie and uh, Greg Schleter, and Professor Lee Strang of the Toledo School of Law, and uh, Father Mike Dandran will be joining us very shortly. And beautiful Felicity Strang. That's right, a real legal scholar, Felicity Strang. Uh, So, Stephanie, I didn't even tell you this, but when Uh I dropped off the two younger girls this past Monday, Sunday, at the Catholic Youth Summer Camp, we stopped at McDonald's, and the marquee had a very controversial statement on there. Tell us. That most of the world would disagree with. It said, Lovin' is better than hatin'. I mean, that's just reaching, isn't it? I mean, it is so <laughs> controversial. They're really reaching. I'm surprised people just didn't boycott them. Uh, but in seriously, all seriousness, folks, um, the events of the past week put on center stage this notion of love. And who would disagree with that? Lovin' is greater than hatin'. Clearly, that was uh, in response to the Supreme Court decision. We could and, get Satan uh, in there as part of the poem. Really? How? Sorry, I'm missing something. You totally threw me (laughs) off there. But anyway, so, you know, we're talking loving is greater than hate. Nobody would disagree with that. If you look at social media space. And the Lord has conquered Satan. And the conversations, there we go. And the conversations we've been having, uh, really you'll see the word love in there. And I don't think there's a single person who would disagree with the supremacy of love. Tonight, our theme is the state of love. And at the heart of our conversation tonight, and we do invite you to call in and participate. We invite you to communicate, and that word perhaps says it all, to communicate. It literally means with union, communication, with unification. And as Catholics, we see that play out in our participation in Christ, our identity, holy communion. We want to communicate tonight. We want to invite you with uh, respectful candor to call in and share with us your thoughts when appropriate. And that number is 877-275-8098. You are on a Catholic station, of course, and I think it's important right out of the gates to recognize every single person in this room and uh, uh, who call themselves Catholic uh, that we're familiar with. You know, it's, it's a journey for us. We are not arrived. We are not there. Um, we are professing a truth that has been revealed to us. A truth is God who is love. He is the very nature of love, and he reveals himself to us in that nature of sacrificing self, for the good of other. He reveals to us a shape of love, a contour throughout scripture. It's unmistakable that he is defining, if you will, think of a highway, the lines along that highway that lead us in a direction, in a safe direction. And in the past 20, 30, 40 years, maybe earlier, you know, there's been this notion that we can kind of create our own terms, our own realities, and call them love or call them happiness. And the truth is, Many of us, my hand is in the air, each one of us have followed our misguided desires. Have we not? In some way or another, we've run into those berms, and guess what? We are really hurt. As Chesterton said in so many words, we really can't break the law, and the moral law he's speaking of, so much as be broken against it. The contour of that road does not change. The choices that we make reveal us more or less broken. And so when we understand that sociologically, when we look at the stats of the decisions people make, again, it affirms we really can't break the law, only ourselves against it. And Christ revealed to us this truth of our nature of being imago Dei, made in the image of God, and the nature of love is to sacrifice self for the good of other. So just before we go further, just so we understand 
and aren't sort of just throwing our own ideas out there, I invite you to look at the Catechism, 2331. And it begins at 2331, where really our church articulates this truth. And again, I want to make it clear that these are truths that we've come to embrace. I embrace these truths. I'm not just a robot. I'm not just an automaton saying, oh, the church teaches this. I should accept it. I have found these to be true for the good of the human nature, whether agnostic, Jewish, Muslim. Uh, we are all ordered toward this love. So I'm just, Steph and I are going to alternate four pericopes, if you will, 2331 through 2334, and invite you to listen to these. 2331 from the Catechism. God is love, and in himself, he lives a mystery of personal, loving communion, creating the human race in his own image. God inscribed in the humanity of man and woman the vocation, and thus the capacity and responsibility of love and communion. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Sexuality affects all aspects of the human person in the unity of his body and soul. It especially concerns affectivity, the capacity to love and to procreate, and in a more general way, the aptitude for forming bonds of communion with others. Everyone, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity. Physical, moral, and spiritual difference and complementarity are oriented towards the goods of marriage and the flourishing of family life. The harmony of the couple and of society depends in part on the way in which the complementarity needs and mutual support between the sexes are lived out. In creating men, male and female, God gives man and woman an equal personal dignity. Man is a person, man and woman equally so, since both were created in the image and likeness of the personal God. So again, just reading 2331 through 2334 of the Catechism, we are going to maybe make that our reading for tonight um, and invite you to join us in prayer as tonight we take up the question, the state of love, blessed to have with us Professor Lee Strang of the Toledo School of Law and now Father Mike Danderin. Danderan. So, Father Mike, are you with us? Yes. Good evening, Greg and Stephanie. Hello, Father. Thank you for being with us tonight. I am honored to be a part of this conversation. And welcome, Lee, also. It's nice to also be a part of this conversation with you as well. Sure. Thanks, Father. So, before we go further, uh, Father, just to catch you up here, thank you for joining us. We know you had some meetings before and just joined us. We're inviting folks to communicate with us. Again, that word, with union, with unity. And we're giving you folks the number to call in with your questions, 877-275-8098. And before we go any further, I'm going to just ask Father Mike, put him on the spot here, to just lead us in a prayer to open the door to our Holy Communion tonight. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Almighty God, we call upon your divine presence that you might send forth the Holy Spirit upon this conversation, this conversation of importance as regards the human person and the human family. With your divine presence and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, may we be ever aware that your guiding hand is a part of this conversation. May all the listeners find grace in this conversation to be more faithful in living, or an ardently living, 
the call of discipleship, to conform their life, particularly their sexual life, to the will of the Father. Um, bless Greg and Stephanie in this apostolate. May your words uh, be with uh, Professor Strang as well. We entrust this conversation to Jesus through the hands of Mary as we pray. Hail, Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, grace. the Lord, Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, among women. And, and blessed is, is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary, Mother, Mother of God, God pray, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour, the hour of, of our death. death. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 So you're tuned in to Ignite Radio Live, the four stations of Annunciation Radio, and we're opening up the door with humility, but an eagerness to know the heart of God on the question, the state of love. And uh, so when we say Supreme Court, um, we're really kind of talking about two things. One, of course, is the Supreme Court of the United States and its decision. And in a moment, we're going to have Lee kind of share with us what went down, but also being mindful that as Catholics... We're very much wanting to look at this in light of the real Supreme Court. That would be the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who fashioned us all in our capacity to love with a great identity and mission to make God, who is love, known. So with no further ado, Lee, we're so delighted to have you with us. What went down last week with the Supreme Court, and what reasons did they give us for the ruling? Sure, Greg. So the Supreme Court, I think probably not surprisingly, ruled that states have to issue marriage licenses not just to people who want to enter into traditional marriages, but also into same-sex or homosexual marriages. And the court gave a number of reasons. The opinion was written by Justice Anthony Kennedy, which also wasn't a surprise because he had written the previous two opinions that dealt with issues about homosexual rights, and, and he foreshadowed where he was going. And, uh, and, his, and his, definitely his own voice comes through in these opinions. And listening to what your introductory uh, dialogue was, Greg, it was interesting because when I read the opinion a number of times, um, I, I have to say that, that love wasn't the, the thing that was on the top of my list, but in, in light of what you had said in reviewing the notes that I had made, looking at the reasons the court gave, the court defined marriage as a romantic conception of marriage. And so the court, for example, on page 13 says, the nature of marriage is that through its enduring bond, two persons together can find other freedoms such as expression, intimacy, and spirituality. Mm. And so the court is mm. talking about marriage is all about love. and and, and the court related that evolving conception of what marital love is to what I would characterize as, as, a, as a, uh, like, a, like a, an animal coming out of a cocoon repeatedly. So at one time we thought marriage equals love plus people of the same race. Or we thought that marriage equals love plus um, a male-dominated house and the women were mm. quasi-property. And the court says like, we've shed those in incorrect views and now we're at the essence of what marriage is, which is uh, the enduring bond of two adults. And then, and then tied that to another claim, which is that, that, that same-sex sexual orientation is immutable. And so the only way, Justice Anthony Kennedy argued, that, that, that homosexual Americans can find full love in this conception of marriage is if we open up marriage to not just people of opposite sex, but people of the same sex. Wow. And then thinking about kind of the Catholic conception of marriage, which includes, of course, love between two, two adults, um, the court explicitly said that marriage is not about procreation. And it did so mm -hmm. in, a really, in a really thin argument is about, about a paragraph, which frankly is surprising because the, the main argument out there, the main oppo opposing argument, the argument made by the states, was that marriage is about fundamentally about the, the rearing and bringing into the world of children. Mm. And the wow. court just spends a paragraph 
looking off. Throws so it in there. So definitely, so love is at the top of the court's mind. Um, it's a, it's an alternative conception of what counts as love. Yeah. What if you had to put words on that that may not have been provided by the Supreme Court? Because we see this in social media space, you know, and, and love wins, of course, is their hashtag, right? That's right. And what what in your understanding is their description of love or their definition of love as best as you might read between the penumbra the shadows yeah so justice kennedy i think does maybe he's the last romantic where he has a a, a, a somewhat a moderately attractive conception of marriage where it is about people who truly care for each other and so he repeatedly refers to the 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 the, the plaintiffs in these cases and so the plaintiffs in these cases clearly had by to all outward appearances strong friendships with the people that they were in love with right and, uh, and one of the challenges I think we face is that, at least in modern American society, two men or two women, it's hard to, to think of them as having close friendships in the way that maybe the ancients did. Um, and, but these folks that were the, the, the plaintiffs clearly had really close relationships, and, and, and Justice Kennedy referred to that. And so what counted as love? Love was a, a robust friendship between, between two adult individuals, um, and it w- which not explicitly but, but implicitly because of the facts of the case and because I think of other things, um, had a sexual component to it. Now, we know that um, natural law is a participation in divine law, and I don't know if we trace back our history, if Americans can understand that we stand on that you know, core conception. You're nodding your head. Um, so to some extent, where do we throw nature out the door here in the evident lack of complementarity that is undeniable. I mean, you don't put two non-complementary pieces of a puzzle together and say that's a fit, nor do you, you know, sort of, uh, you know, eat food and induce vomiting and call that nutrition. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, two bodies that just don't fit together. I mean, just nobody's, there's nothing inflammatory or derogatory. It's just a scientific fact. They don't fit together, nor can their processes accomplish, you know, what is undeniably their scientific purpose. So, how how did that departure happen upon us in the court? Well, so the the Supreme Court opinion does, itself doesn't give much evidence as to having engaged with what you're describing, Greg. So there's, here's here's the one sentence that that fits that. So in responding to something like what Greg was saying, decisions about whether to marry and raise children are based on many personal, romantic, and practical considerations. It is unrealistic to conclude that an opposite-sex couple would choose not to marry simply because same-sex couples may do so. In other words, the argument is that. The fact that we have same-sex people who, by definition, don't fit together in the way you're describing, mm-hmm. can't procreate together, um, that's not going to impact the broader marriage culture uh, because, as we talked about earlier, that's not what marriage is, right? Marriage simply is and only is two people uh, having a deep friendship with each other. And of a sexual nature. Which it's not, it's not expressed. And there is kind of a weird passage where Justice mm-hmm. Kennedy acknowledges that there are people who are married who are of opposite sex who don't have children. And, he's, and I think it's, it's a segue to say, and aha, here are the folks who are the same sex who don't have children as well. So, so I think it's there, but it's not, hmm. it, it just, it's not a necessary condition to marriage, which that is one of the implications, right? So once you have said that marriage is just about two people having deep feelings for each other, then where are the lines beyond that? Now, I don't want to overly confuse this pointed argument, but we do understand at the heart of this, is in a Catholic church, we are, you could go anywhere to get married. People who choose, though, to be married in a Catholic church are making an, a statement, an amen, an I believe. And that I believe is to be open to having life, is to understand us as imaging the Trinity. And um, 
I guess you see some of the Humanae Vitae prophecy in there for folks. Uh, Paul the Sixth landmark, uh, really encyclical on contraception and that sort of thing. So um, you, you see some of that traced out here. It seems is what you're saying. Uh, my, a question that I have in addition before I lose it is: Is there anything here that prevents the polyamory folks? From coming forward, we know they're out there to say, "Well, why not multiple people in in calling themselves, you know, calling it a marriage?" Yeah, and so I think you know your point, Greg, about humanity vitae and its predictions. So the the case that set all of this in motion was a case called Griswold versus Connecticut, which was decided in the '60s, and it, it overturned one of the last vestiges of actually a Protestant movement to outlaw access to artificial birth control because even the Protestants of the time knew that widespread access was going to corrupt families and corrupt individuals, and the majority said, we're striking down this statute, but don't you worry, we are not striking down adultery laws, we're not striking down laws against fornication, we're not striking down laws against divorce. And so, and I'm not sure why, if the majority honestly believe that in Griswold, but, it, but at the time it was unpermissible to even think that those things were on, on the road. And then what happens, mm -hmm. through a series of cases over a generation, we end up with um, movements towards greater sexual autonomy, and now we've kind of capstoned it with, with Oberfell. And then back to your point, Greg, about what's the, what's the limit. And so the reasoning that the court gives, which is that marriage simply is a deep relationship between two individuals, the court uses the word two a lot throughout there, but there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing tied to the reasoning, right? Mm -hmm. Except there's one thing. So the court says, as I was mentioning earlier, if marriage is about love and if marriage statutes currently exclude same-sex people from achieving marriage, therefore it precludes them from achieving love, and, and, and they're stuck, the court says, because sexual orientation is immutable. So one maybe way to distinguish it would be to say nobody's born with a disposition towards polyamory, right? Mm. Or, I'm not sure if that's true. I, I don't know. But I guess that'd be one potential way. That's a thin read, though, right? Because, mm. you know, if, if it's all about love, as everybody's saying, including the president, mm -hmm. then what, what, what is the fact that some people are, are born or however they get their desire for loving more than one person? Mm -hmm. um, it's all about love. I want to turn to you, Father Mike, in just a second. So for our listeners, though, again, tune into Ignite Radio Live for those just tuning in. And we're talking about the state of love. That's our, our, our term for tonight, our, our theme for tonight. We want to invite you to call in and, you know, ask your questions. Even if you feel like they're against what the church teaches or, or whatever, we encourage you. We welcome you. We know we want to more than just discuss the content from our beliefs and our Catholic perspective. We want to provide a platform where we can talk about these with great respect for one another. So 877-275-8098. So Lee, um, the definition of love that the Supreme Court gives us is a little bit, shall we say, subjective. It, it kind of um, lacks some of the definition anchored in, say, God or the nature of the human person by design, the complementarity. And Now this may seem absurd, uh, but didn't you know, same gender, you know, marriage seemed absurd 30 years ago. It did. Nobody yeah. would deny that. Sure. Um, so we're talking now polyamory is a possibility because, uh, you know, who can doubt that they love each other within the definition of the Supreme Court? But a second thing, again, this sounds absurd, but as we would say, a reductio ad absurdum, what's to prevent, a, and this is going to be crazy for our listeners, but is there anything in this to prevent a father from marrying his son? Well, uh, so long as they are two adults, who commit to love each other that would fit within the court's reasoning. Um, you know, I guess one could argue that there are reasons for uh, public health to not do it, although I think kind of the same arguments would, could argue for reasons against same-sex marriage, or some similar kind of arguments could argue against reasons for same-sex marriage. And if, if I were a future Justice Kennedy faced with 
two, two plaintiffs, uh, a father and daughter, or maybe three plaintiffs, a husband and two potential two ostensible wives, what I'm going to do is I'm going to point to Justice Kennedy's story, right, his history, his narrative about how we got to where with our enlightened view about marriage. What do we do? We shed all those bad old conceptions, right, about race or about man, male headship. And, 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 and what, what would the plaintiffs argue? Let's shed these other conceptions mm-hmm. about interfamiliar, like what, what mm-hmm. does that have to do with love? Or what does, what does numbers have to do with love, right? And so, so the story that, that Justice Kennedy tells, isn't, it's not done being written, right? He's, right? he's just one chapter in an ongoing narrative that can be more capacious as it goes on. And these are things that folks, uh, all well-intentioned, brothers and sisters who God fashioned to know him, regardless of what sign they're carrying or what parade they're going to, you know, Ephesians 6, 12, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against principalities and powers. And oh, by the way, that means us. We have not arrived you know, we discover a truth here that we do not perfectly accomplish by any means, nor could we. In fact, we don't without the grace of God, and therein is the gift of his church. We need the grace. We need the articulation. We're with every person on this planet, as Pope Francis said, is a sinner. When asked that question, who is Pope Francis? The first words out of his mouth, Pope Francis is a sinner. Father Michael, and we have some other questions we want to dive in with regard to the Supreme Court here, but uh, Father Mike, you are a chaplain of an organization called Courage, so we're delighted to have you with us tonight, and certainly anything we've discussed thus far that you might want to comment on but share with us if you could a little bit about courage sure and greg it's great to be part of this conversation but if i could begin um dr strang your your read of the of the case is so insightful and i have to be honest i i just i sit here i'm really pondering the profound effect that the court will have on our culture and our country when they remove procreation from the definition of marriage. Mm. That, 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 that's astounding to me right. um, because that just shifts everything. If, it, if marriage is just an enduring bond of two people, I mean, golly jeepers, <laughs> that opens the gates for every sort of, of re- human relationship to be a marriage. Right. You know, historically, I mean, civilizations have been built upon the concept that man and woman enter into some sort of covenant that does indeed bring about life and that life is under their care and under their care they bring forth citizens to further you know advance that society and when you remove procreation from the definition of marriage um, that that's really very astounding to me so uh, Professor Strang, Dr. Strang, thank you for your read of the case and your thorough read that has given this um, the court's definition of marriage. Sure. Um, you know, I would when I heard that, uh, Dr. Strang, I thought immediately of, of Pope John Paul II and or Saint John Paul II and his uh, his whole discourse on the theology of the body. You know, he gave these hundred and some audiences uh, mm-hmm. to the faithful on about the human person and the God's plan for human sexuality, God's plan for marriage, that have now been consolidated into uh, a theological teaching about the theology of the body. And, and, he, and in his autobiography, in the biography written about him by Weigel, he makes it very clear that the reason he went about this endeavor of this treatise, and it, it's very much a treatise, and very much a theological sort of treatise, it goes very deep, the reason he did it was in for, what was so that the te- church's teaching on procreation 
could be better understood. It was all about that because he felt like Kamani Vitae was so misunderstood and misrepresented when it came out in the 1960s that he wanted to reverse the misrepresentation and the bad presentation of it through this thing. But it was all about procreation. What is God's plan for it? So um, it just was, a, it seems to me, <clears throat> prophetic in some way that St. John Paul II brings us back mm-hmm. to really what it's all about. The time bomb set to go off sometime in the 21st century. Uh, John Paul, actually is Weigel's commentary on Pope John Paul II in that biography, Witness to Hope. Father, tell us a little bit about courage, which I think is important. We may have a caller here we'll tune in to in just a second. Um, but, you know, what folks may not realize about the Catholic Church is yeah. not only is she there to articulate the truths for the good of our nature, not just this, you know, one book of a thousand on a shelf, but uh, truly gives us a good for our nature. But when we do run into the wall, when we do experience ourselves with disordered desires, and again, we all do, the church is there to guide us, to love us, to lead us, to be compassionate. And I see courage uh, mm-hmm. is one of the, mm-hmm. the, the formidable Catholic organizations that endeavors to do that. Can you tell us a little bit about that as the chaplain yeah. of courage? And cur- courage is just that. I mean, courage is, it is an international apostle of the Catholic Church that ministers to people with same-sex attraction. So the Church recognizes that there are members who we pray with Sunday after Sunday who struggle with this issue in their life. They're attracted not to the opposite sex, but they have a sexual and emotional attraction to the same sex. Um, and the Church is, it just wants to be very clear, like, hey, they're in our family, and we want to minister to them. So courage, courage is that for them. So I had the opportunity to be the the chaplain of the Courage chapter in our diocese. <clears throat> um, it's a fledging chapter. I mean, we're, we're relatively new. We started about five years ago. I meet once a month with um, anywhere from four to five or six um, people who are Catholic, who love Christ, mm-hmm. who love the Church, and yet they carry the, cra- the cross of same-sex attraction. Mm-hmm. They don't label themselves as gay. They don't label themselves as homosexual because that label, it, it, it reduces their identity to simply one dimension of their personhood. Mm-hmm. Um, they, are, they are children of God. That's how they identify themselves. And that's how we identify them. You're a child of God. You're a member of his holy family on earth, the Catholic Church. And yet you carry with you this cross of being attracted to people of the same sex. So Courage wants to gather them together to let them know that the church is their spiritual home, that the church loves them, and the church wants to support them. The support the church offers them is keeping forward that vision, that great vision that Christ has for each one of us. Let's be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's fall madly in love with Christ, mm-hmm. and let's follow him, because he, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And um, Courage gives that, that opportunity with monthly gatherings, and in our monthly gatherings, we just support each other. Um, they pray together. They talk about their life. They talk about their struggle. They remind, they remind each other. Um, commenting on what you're saying, uh, Father Mike, thank you for that. And it's so good for our audience to know this. And uh, we'll give contact information for anybody here who might be in that place themselves or know somebody who is. But I want to make it kind of... Uh, clear uh, what's happening. You have a priest on the phone, and all the priests will say that I know the red-blooded American men. 
who have chosen uh, this call by God to be priests of God, and um, and they have to live a life of self-mastery. And by the way, I'm, one second. Um, we've got a lot of communication going on besides the mic. I got the information, guys. Um, uh, no, we, we, we are a married man who, you know, may, if you will, use the language of fall in love with the secretaries, whomever it may be in life circumstances. Do we not need to exercise self-mastery and sexual self-control? Is there not a good about that? Um, regardless of whom it is or whatever it is, I think the answer is yes. And I would just direct our listeners how we began in reading from the Catechism, which again, not just this tyrannical document that we all blindly with eyes wide open with a bright headlight in it follow, but makes good, beautiful sense. And number 2,339 says this, chastity includes an apprenticeship in self-mastery, which is a training in human freedom. The alternative is clear. Either man cover, governs his passions and finds peace, or lets himself be dominated by them and becomes unhappy. Man's dignity therefore requires him to act out of conscious and free choice, as moved and drawn in a personal way from within, and not be not by blind impulses in himself or by mere external constraint. Man gains such dignity when, ridding himself of all slavery to the passions, he presses forward to his goal by freely choosing what is good and, by his diligence and skill, effectively secures for himself the means suited to his end. So just pronouncing for everybody, we're all on this path of imperfection, of poverty, in search of him who is our provision. God gave us none, you know, we call it concupiscence. We enter this world with these misordered, disordered passions and and they're not their own validation of right. And in my mind, this is the big leap that the Supreme Court may be making, that it's, it's taking a, a desire and, and the mere fact of the desire to validate a right. Not only that, to val uh, designate it as a right, but to give special privileges. And um, we've got something on the phone. I think we're going to make the turn to it. Um, I just want to comment quickly before we go to our caller. Father Mike, you had uh, used the term, as Greg did earlier, too, being created in the image and likeness of God. And that focus mm -hmm. on identity, right? Like for mm -hmm. each and every person, regardless of sexual orientation or whatever phrase you want to use, that that is our identity. And I think um, something that was brought to light for me personally was um, the fact that we need in our discussions to separate sexual orientation from the person. That is not the identity of that person. I don't go up to people, introduce myself, and say, hi, I'm Stephanie, I'm heterosexual. You know, like, but I am a daughter of God, and that is where my identity comes from. And also in your prayer, Father Mike, which was so beautiful, you stress discipleship, that we may just, in, in your um, commenting on courage in your, your prayer groups, that just to fall madly in love with Christ and to focus yeah. on that discipleship and to conform our lives to his will. So with that, um, we have a caller. I believe it is Jeff. Yeah, I, um, thank you for having me, uh, putting my call through. And I want to also say, Stephanie and Greg, how much I appreciate uh, your show every Tuesday. It's really phenomenal. And thank also you. Thank say you. hello to um, Professor Strang and Father Mike. Um, so my, my question really is uh, seeking comment from uh, Professor Strang. I uh, am a lawyer by background, uh, although I haven't practiced in decades. We call that recovering? <laughs> 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 I, 
I uh, took the time to read the opinion over the weekend, and um, I'm going to focus on the um, on the dissenting opinion. So we have a nine justice court, and we have a, a five to four decision. Yeah, very tight. Um, with Kennedy writing and um, none of the other justices um, joining in a uh, separate opinion. Yeah, and then we get to the we get to the dissents, and I, I was struck by what seemed like a four-legged stool of the four dissenters and the strength and language that they use. I'm going to quote from Justice Scalia's opening line. Um, I joined the Chief Justice's opinion in full. I write separately to call attention to this court's threat to American democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote the minority, the minority or the dissenting opinion, said that the Constitution had absolutely nothing to do with that decision. Alito outright came out and said, I was shocked by this, Alito's dissent said that the court is corrupt and it's beyond being able to be changed. Uh, So my question to to you, uh, Professor, is, is is this some of the most shocking language you've ever seen in a dissent? And is it really a call the American people that we're heading into some form of tyranny? Great question. Yeah, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm somebody who, one of the reasons why I went into law is because of, you know, not just an abstract conception that the rule of law is good and valuable, which it is, but also because of a faith in the American legal system and wanting to be a part of and make that the best it can be. And so actually it was very distressing on Friday to get the opinion. I wasn't, again, surprised about the result, which itself was distressing, but in reading through the majority opinion, um, and for those of you who kind of are, for those in the audience who aren't on the inside, so Justice Kennedy, there's kind of like two Justice Kennedys out there. There's like the good Justice Kennedy who will come out, especially like on federalism issues, like states' rights issues, and talk about, oh, this is a states' rights issue, which is kind of ironic. Um, and will we'll be a very lawyerly, very workmanlike opinions with citations to Preston or James Madison or the Federalist Papers. And then there's the Mr. Hyde Justice Kennedy that you see, for example, in this opinion, which is, as Justice Scalia said, like a, a long string of cookie, um, fortune cookie statements about platitudinous good stuff. And in fact, so I'm, I'm on a listserv of other constitutional law professors, and there's and those folks just, it's probably not a surprise, 99% of them love the result. Wow. But almost all of them are saying things like, I agree with the result, but, and the but always then is followed by, well, this opinion isn't very good. And what it strikes me like is the Roe versus Wade opinion. So, so growing up, We've thought about Roe versus, at least I grew up hearing about Roe versus Wade, and I thought, I can't wait to read the opinion when we get to law school. And I was underwhelmed by that opinion. And it's the same thing here, where this opinion is really underwhelming, even for people who are in favor of the result in the case. Underwhelming for all the reasons that John was describing that the dissenters had described as, as not supporting its proposition, not being the work of lawyers, but being the work of maybe like a, like a, a grade school or middle school or some kind of... A purported philosopher, um, and not being the work of people interpreting the Constitution as, to do, as opposed to doing something else. I'm not sure what that, that other thing is. And so the majority opinion was, was very poorly written. The dissent opinions were very robust. Um, and in fact, I would say Justice Scalia's opinions, which I always love reading for a whole bunch of reasons, were the most biting that I've ever seen mm-hmm. him. And that's actually, he has a high level of biting. Bitingness. Yes, and, he does. Uh, <laughs> And and just the, like the, you could tell, at least my reading was the personal vitriol, personal anger, frustration that Justice Scalia has, in particular, I think personally with Justice Kennedy, because remember, 
Justice Kennedy signed the plurality in the Casey opinion, which affirmed Roe versus Wade, affirmed the right to abortion. And the story is that Justice Scalia went to Justice Kennedy's house and said, what are you doing, Anthony? Because Justice Kennedy initially was signing on with the pro-life majority and secretly then went back and joined the, the, pro, the pro-abortion majority. And so I think Justice Scalia is like, I've had enough of this. This has been 20 years with this guy. And I'm letting it all out. So, I, so John, I, I agree with your assessment. So what are the implications? And I'm saying this, make this accessible for our listeners. Um, we've got a Supreme Court making a rule, uh, which appears really like a law in, in many regards. It's an act of really uh, what judicial constructionism. Um, and there are implications for it down the road. Uh, people may like the result. Um, but... What's really at stake here for a, a, a country that was, uh, you know, founded on some fundamental principles of natural law, participating in divine law for the good of the human person? I mean, every do and don't, let me just make this clear for our listeners. If you're talking about do's and don'ts, which is what government does, that presupposes a philosophical system of belief, that there's a basis to know what is the do's and what are not, what are the don'ts. And all of those are anchored from the very beginning or can be anchored in a, in kind of a religion. So there's always been sort of um, an integration of these so long as they're not depriving somebody of the right to worship or right to believe. Um, and, you know, explain to us a little bit about what's at stake here for the values that we hold uh, good and true. So from the legal side, Greg, so one of the analogies that's out there is that this is a victory just like the victory over racism, right? And so... One of the ways to think about what the impact is going to be is, well, what was the impact of decisions that eliminated the legal support for racism? And so what do we do to people who have racist views? We, we ostracize them. We, we, we impose social pressure. We impose legal pressure on, on them. So we ostracize them socially. We, if, if somebody interviews and they express a racist opinion, we don't hire them. Uh, think of radio stations. Do, do, do expressly racist radio stations get FCC licenses? Nope. And so think of all the things that socially and legally that we do to people that the proponents of homosexual marriage say this is just like and are arguing, right? And during the oral argument for the case, one of the justices asked, here's what we do to people who have racist views. You're analogizing this to the, the anti-miscegenation, the racist marriage statutes in the, in the, in the 1960s. So are we going to do the same thing, like remove tax-exempt status? And the Solicitor General didn't say no. The Solicitor General said We'll have to work that out over time, wow. <laughs> right? And so that's like yeah. a huge matzo ball. But look, also look huge. to our neighbor in the north. What does Canada do um, as a result of having same-sex marriage for over ten years? Just thinking of Catholic education. So Catholic education in Canada um, is required by the Canadian government, by the different provincial governments, to teach a kind of sex ed class that norm that that has as normative same-sex relationships. And so that's just like a yeah. small tidbit of the huge tidal wave or, or, or ball that I think is rolling down the road legally. The one, the one advantage our Catholic schools have in, in the United States is that we're not funded by the government, whereas in Canada, Canada they are. So Canada is a, Canada Catholic schools are more, more beholden to the government because their subsidy comes from the government. At least here in America, we have enough financial independence from government subsidy that we... Um, we won't cave in to that mandate should that mandate ever come. Let me shift this argument or conversation, really not an argument, but conversation to uh, a consideration of what now? You know, the Supreme Court has ruled. It's not likely to be overturned um, in the near future. 
I think it really punctuates where our culture's at. So really, they're de- kind of declaring something that we know there's a popular uh, support for. Um, and we are, we know, we're branded um, as hateful bigots. And um, so where, where does the Catholic Church, where, where should we stand in the midst of this confusion? Many of whom are are faithful, if you will, Catholics otherwise in the pews, very active in our churches, uh, you know, doing very good things for the church, um, and who feel very strongly about this. Um, and I would say it's probably along the lines of, you know, if, if people love each other, who are we to, you know, put limitations on them, you know, expressing that love in the form of what we call marriage. Of course, tonight, hopefully, if, if nothing else, we understand that, you know, if we, if we disregard the Catholic view, the Christian view of imaging God and the mission, uh, complementarity that involves unity and procreation, if we disregard that, what's to keep any other person from claiming, you know, marriage? And we talked about polyamory or a father and a son, and the answer is nothing. So I think right out of the gates, we've got to understand if the premise is what one feels or one's love for another, if we should preserve that without which one is a bigot or hateful, there's nothing we have to say about that kind of union receiving a kind of social privilege. Um, so the question is, how do we deal with it? And um, I at least want to offer for our consideration, so we've talked about culture in the Supreme Court, a look in the mirror. A look in the mirror. Recently, uh, Dr. Greg Popcheck uh, was, was um, uh, with his wife Lisa presiding or with a CARA study that uh, did some analysis on the state of the Catholic family. And, um, and this is why this is important. If we're called to make God who is love known in our marriages and in our families, we bear some responsibility for what's happening around us. To a significant extent, maybe we need to look and say, are we giving, have we been giving an authentic witness of a joy-filled, mutual, self-giving love that images the Trinity? And I think if we're really, really honest, the answer is by and large, no. And we know by the age of 23, 80% of those who call themselves Catholics are gone, and these are folks who received the sacraments. They're gone by the age of 23. Some other stats came out in the CARA study. Listen to this. 22% of Catholic families attend Mass weekly. About 36% of Catholic parents say they pray daily. Only 36%. Roughly one-third of Catholic parents pray daily. 17% of those who pray... um, continue to pray as a family. So I'll, I'll state that 83% of Catholic parents who pray by themselves do not pray as a family. That's pretty uh, stark. And while, while 50% of Catholic families eat dinner together regularly, which I think is a little surprising to me that 50% even eat meals together daily, only 13% of families say they pray a prayer before meals every day. Now that's kind of like, the, you know, the entry level, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, bless us, O Lord, and leave thy gifts. Only 13% of all Catholic families are praying before meals. So I just want to read these words from Dr. Gregory Popcheck, who is well immersed um, in this area of study. And I'm going to read some quotes here from the just, really, this just came out. What does it all mean, he says? Wake up, church. It means that the kids are not all right. It means that Catholic family life is not okay. Most importantly, it means that we as a church need to stop assuming that the families in the pews have been equipped to live and proclaim the gospel and that whatever other ministry we may do, 
we need to allocate resources to shoring up our own spiritual house because it is falling around, falling down around our ears. Thoughts on that? Well, I think, Greg, the question is, where, where does our Catholic community, our Catholic family go from here? You know, I, I think we first, <clears throat> we stand in truth, okay? I think our Catholic family has to, to find truth, and, and the truth is Jesus Christ and his teachings for us. We stand there, and then we have the, we have the courage to live that and witness to that boldly, okay? That's, I think, our response. Uh, to this landmark decision of the Supreme Court. I think in two ways. I, I would, you know, want to kind of encourage strongly, as you did, you know, I'm sorry, Catholic families, you know, husbands and wives, you guys give witness to what is God's plan for marriage. Mm. Live that fully, live that boldly. You know, allow your marriage to be a testimony to a unit of love that brings forth life. That brings forth life. Catholic married couples do not oppose God's plan for life because when you do so, you give witness to the opposite end of the argument. Mm. You know? So our Catholic couples have to give witness that marital life brings forth mar- life, you know? Mm. We have a cru- yeah, my go ahead. Quick, thing, quick thing is that you know we know we know I know that we have Catholics in our family who do struggle with same-sex attraction. Yes. And I I'm kind of encouraged. I don't follow it much, but I listen. I, I, I catch um, in, um, Facebook occasionally. What I see is, and I think more of it needs to happen, is there are Catholics out there who are attracted to the same sex, who are living the heroic call to chastity. And they're stepping forward, and they're saying to the world, the Catholic Church is my refuge. Mm. The Catholic Church gives me vision and plan of living out this reality in my life. For those who are Catholic and struggle with this same-sex attraction, this is your hour. We need you to be emboldened by the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be Mm. a faithful disciple, to live in the will of the Father, and to let the world know that the church is the place where one who struggles with that can find meaning, purpose, and direction. Amen. Father, that was uh, eminently true and powerful. And um, I think a message that we need to radiate. Um, and in some sense, you know, those who struggle with same-sex attraction need to understand they're not alone uh, in that journey. Um, certainly as they would contact a pastor or maybe courage or something, but to be mindful as all of our listeners should be mindful that really this is, this is the ultimate struggle of self mastery versus God mastery. I mean, we are all in the midst of this great struggle of seeking God's will and his grace to overcome our, if you will, unconquered sides in some ways. And we can't do it on our own. And you know, what are the right ways to do this and the wrong ways to do it? You know, I think that's, you know, um, we need to give people permission to journey together in this, and that's where the grace of the sacraments, in my mind, uh, kind of comes into play. And I do think, you know, 
as we're aware of what's happening there in the culture, Stephanie and I, maybe just a week earlier, it was one of those Saturday mornings, rare. We didn't have obligations, and we were just able to, you know, kind of lie in bed and talk on a Saturday morning, early Saturday morning. And it just kind of was an aha epiphany moment as we considered couples that we love, Catholic couples that are in the saddle, that are the leaders, that are driving forces in the Catholic Church. And it occurred to us that easily 75% of them at that very moment are couples that are struggling in their marriages in significant ways. And maybe there's a kind of, I don't know, shame or fear that um, heals, that, that insulate them from getting the kind of support that they need. Um, what does this do? It humanizes us all. It, it makes us all aware of our need for Jesus and to kind of not make assumptions of where people are at with their situations. Um, to approach folks regardless of where they're coming from or what flag they're holding up, you know, with the conviction that God fashioned them for a fulfillment that can only be found in Him. And, uh, I, you know, I really appreciate you, uh, Father, in kind of articulating that, and we need to kind of more boldly open that door um, and invite others to join us. Um, Lee, so as we look at this decision, um, are there some things that we can do you know, as families, if you will, uh, in your mind as you think about the decision in particular to maybe, I don't know, edify us against sort of the fallout uh, socially, socially, culturally, as a father, as a husband? Um, yeah, so after the decision came down, my wife and I, Elizabeth, have had a lot of conversations. That, like, does this change how we approach our family or, or other things? And I don't think it necessarily changes, but maybe like uh, reinforces the urgency of, of having to to, uh, to be self-conscious and deliberate about how we approach raising our family. And so I think my prescription would be similar to what, with maybe different language, to what Father had said. So the first part, I think, would be what I describe as building communities of virtue. And a community of virtue is a, is a, is a group of people who are building each other up. They're, they're, they're places where human beings, both young and old, are able to, 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 to flourish as humans. All the stuff is there that they need to be the best humans they can be. It's also relatively isolated. In other words, the bad stuff in the culture. So in other words, uh, a school with uh, a kid who has two mommies, or or um, or a, the MTV, which is bringing into your home, right? That's not going to be in the community of virtue. And the community of virtue is going to build up strong people who are going to be able to go out and, and forays and engage with the broader culture. And so the community of virtue, I think, comes in different packages. So there's the domestic church and the family. There's the parish, which would be the center of the family's social life. I think there's what I would describe as social entrepreneurship, what, what Greg and Stephanie do as, as, as a really robust example, smaller examples, reading groups, right? We talked about, or at least I talked about, the lack of, of, of outlets for, 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 for full, true, platonic friendship, having a book club with a bunch of guys, right? Mm -hmm. Those kind of things. And, that, and that's a place for flourishing to occur. And then the kind of flip side of that is as people are, are, are built and strengthened within those communities of virtue, they're going to have the strength to be able to go out into the public square that Christians need to be in, to be salt and light, to be a light, not under a bushel basket, to be in, in their individual capacities. And I imagine somebody here like, like Robert Father Barron is, is a great example of that, or groups. So, so it can be a local group. It can be a national group that's out there fighting the good fights, spreading the good word um, from the Catholic perspective about marriage, among other things. And mm. um, and not wanting to cede that that public that public space because that's certainly for example working in a public university that's I, I conceive as a real threat that that the university is already very aggressive about mm. its orthodoxy and in trying to uh, at the at, at the very least with a soft glove silence people um, having we have very few Christians I think in the university at least that are so called out of the closet Christians and so 
we need those people because there are a lot of students who want to know an alternative perspective. Mm -hmm. In fact, as we're saying, need an alternative perspective to flourish. It occurs to me right now, just the providence of this moment as you're listening on air right now, that we have with us two guests who are both from Holy Trinity Parish, (laughs) which uh, has been in partnership with us for a number of months in using Ignite and engaging their parish to become, if you will, that kind of community that is alive in the Holy Spirit, that is living the fullness of God's grace, and not just, as we say, kind of a Catholic hot tub, not just being emptied like Christ and filled, but it's meant to overflow, that this is a community with usual challenges that we all have, imperfections, blemishes, we all have them, but, you know, Ignite's been going, there have been a number of other things that have really caused it to light up, and in a special way, I'm going to segue into a commercial for um, Ignite Catholic Family festival as you're speaking Lee this just came in my mind August 8th everybody in this entire region our diocese our bishop partnering and us serving under him as our lead shepherd with this uh, ignite Catholic Family Festival don't be thrown by the word family certainly means husband and wife for their children but individuals you are all invited to join us for this wonderful day positive joy-filled journey deeper into the love of Christ that you're going to experience on August 8th at Holy Trinity Parish. And uh, you can find out more at massimpact.us. That's the easy, maybe, place to remember and go, massimpact.us, to sign up right now for that. Register now. But uh, ignitefestival.eventbrite.com. And I love, again, just the Holy Trinity little uh, motif going, just so grounded in what this is all about, right? The true meaning of love is in the Trinity. Um, I know many of us have been very discouraged by fellow Catholics after this decision came out. You know, certainly there was that Friday evening afternoon of just great sadness and mourning Mm -hmm. um, by many. And then others, like Greg had mentioned, in the Catholic community, some in leadership positions that were okay with it. And so... Um, Father, I don't know if you have any words about that, or I guess one phrase that kept coming to mind for me that I've used with some others is the whole notion of faith-seeking understanding. Like, even though we may not get it or agree with it, it is our responsibility to come to learn why the church teaches what it teaches. But I pass that off to you. We only have about a minute also. Stephanie, that is so real, that there are Catholics who hear that news on Friday, and it was like a punch in their gut. Absolutely. And, and it lingered with them all weekend. Mm. I mean, I, I would hear that at Saturday or Sunday night masses. I mean, just a punch in the gut, like, wow, mm. this is what our country's turning to. But, you know, I think there's so much more hope, too. You know, that our kingdom is not, you know, the democracy of the United States. As much as I love our democracy, I mean, I'm serving the military. Yes, you are, sure. and thank you for but, that. But, 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 you know, we, we, are, we are citizens of the heaven. Mm. We are citizens of God's kingdom, so we keep our eyes on there, and so we got to build ourselves in the community of virtue. And Dr. Strang, thank you so much for that, 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 that bold call to live in the community of virtue. Sure. And so much, Stephanie and Greg, you know, your, our Catholic family event uh, happening out here on August 8th, you know, builds us together, binds us together as a community of virtue. Um, hey, to, our, to, our, to, our, to any, any couple out there who's listening, mm. and you identify yourself as a Christian marriage, a marriage that's conforming yourself to the will of God the Father and the will of God's plan for human sexuality and marriage, I ask you at this point, declare yourself no longer as just simply married, Mm. but entered into a marriage, a Christian marriage, okay? A Christian marriage, because right now, we live in a world that says marriage is anything. 
It's is a bond part. between two people, enduring bond. No, no, no. If you have entered into a Christian marriage, you are different. C- claim Amen. that. Proclaim that. You are now in a Christian marriage, and be sure you put that adjective before that noun. You are in a Christian marriage. Please, I, I beg you, do that. To differentiate what you are in versus what the Supreme Court has identified as marriage. Lee and Father Mike, thank you so much for being with us. And all of you out there, tune in to Ignite Radio Live. Please hear us say loudly and clearly, we have not arrived. We are united together, uh, imperfect and incomplete, but so blessed that the truth of God's love has been made known in Jesus Christ, in His Church, which loves us and, and really gives us a contour that is meant for human fulfillment on earth as it is in heaven, not just that distant place, but meant here on earth right now and is there to heal us and see our transformation, our truest, best nature in Christ. So we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God, thank you for making us in your image, giving us the capacity to love, to make you who are love known. We entrust our hearts and our minds, our brokenness, all we are to you, guide us and lead us deeper in our identity in you, that we can fulfill our mission to make you known to the world. We ask this in your name, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.